Have you ever uh, found it difficult to stand firm? Do you know what it means to stand firm? <laughs> Have you ever been on a, oh, I don't know, standing in the middle of a, a river or a swiftly running creek and you found it a little bit difficult <laughs> maybe to keep your balance? Um, ever stood on, on, the, on a beach and... Um, you know, the waves are coming in and you're just kind of standing there and you, and you feel the sand kind of giving way under your feet, right? It's difficult at times to stand firm. It's difficult at times to stand firm in life. Um, it's even more difficult to be part of the community of faith, the community that God has created. He's taken people, sinners, fallen people, He's given them His Son, He's given, him, given them his spirit, he's made a new people out of them, a new community on mission in the world, a world that is often very hostile, a world of unbelief, a world that says, why do you believe what you believe? Why would you want to live the way that you live? It's difficult to stand firm in those situations, isn't it? Peter's last, his last words to his, his readers here are really to stand firm. I've been teaching you, he said. He's, he's written this entire letter. And we're here at the last, the last two couple of paragraphs, his, his closing thoughts in this whole letter. And what he wants us to do is to take hold of the truth that he has given us and to stand firm in it, to, to, to make it so that it's, it's a foundation for our lives, for the, how we live. For, for what we are, what we are to be. He says to stand firm. And I want to show you um, through, uh, in this, through this whole, whole uh, passage, all 14 verses, I want to show you four ways in which Peter is exhorting, encouraging, um, stressing to us how we can stand firm. And at first, it, it's, as I was reading this and studying it, I thought, Okay, he, he, he goes and he talks about elders, he talks about these leaders, and what does this have to do with, um, what he, then he goes in and he talks about humility and casting all your anxieties on him, and then the devil, what is all this? It seems like a, a potpourri, a, a smorgasbord of different ideas. How do these all related? How are these all related? But then, if, as, you, as you saw in the reading, in verse 12, he says to stand firm in it. Stand firm in the true grace of God. Everything that he's saying in this last passage is to bolster, to give us a foundation to stand firm in. So let's just dig in. Let's get into this. Let's find out what Peter has for us to hear, what the Holy Spirit has for us to learn from this word this morning. First of all, we are to stand firm under right leaders. Under right leaders. The first four verses of this, of this passage, he's talking about, well, he uses this term elders. What is he talking about, elder? Um, the word elder is all throughout the New Testament. And it's, uh, it's in, used in the Old Testament as well. And um, the first time we hear about the elders, we hear about them in the Gospel accounts. We hear about elders in the gospel accounts. And these were the, the, the uh, usually typically the, in the Jewish community, these were the senior 
members of the community. These were the, the old men, these, the older men who had lived long lives, who had accomplished much, who had had children, who had been established leaders in the church, well, not the church, but in their, in their faith communities, within the Jewish communities. Um, so this word was often used for those Jewish leaders, those men who were prominent in uh, their communities. But then the New Testament, uh, as we go through the New Testament, we see in the book of Acts that Paul is going to other communities. He goes out to other communities outside of the Jewish faith. And now we have these, these gatherings of Greek-speaking people and people of all kinds of different nationalities. And new churches are starting and new churches are developing. And the Bible says that Paul appointed elders that he, he put elders in those positions to lead over the people, lead over the churches. So we go, okay, so there's elders, the old, older men in the Jewish community, elders, the leaders in the church. Um, and then we get to passages like this, and we see that, that Peter is saying all of the stuff he's teaching to the whole church, he's talking to all of the people in the church, and then he takes this little sidebar and he says, okay, now I'm going to talk to you elders. I'm going to exhort and encourage you particular elders. He says that he himself is a fellow elder. And probably Peter was an older man by this time. Probably. He was probably an older man at this time. But it's interesting what he says about elders here. It's interesting what Paul says about elders in, in some other passages um, of the New Testament. Um, and we'll, uh, let, me, let me just show you a couple of things so you can get an idea of what he's talking about. Paul, when he uses the term elder, um, or, uh, let's see, excuse me, in Titus. You don't have to flip here if you don't want to, but I just wanted to, to show you what Paul says um, in the book of Titus. When he tells Titus, who's a, who's a man who's kind of his ambassador um, in the mission for him on the island of Crete, he says, I left you at Crete so that, in verse 5 of Titus 1, he says, so that you will appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then he talks about what they are. And he, he says in a few verses later, he says, he talks about the elders as being an overseer. An overseer. That's where the word where we get this word um, episkopos or episcopal, the episcopal church. Um, we get this, I, this word for uh, elder being an overseer. Um, we get, we get um, in, in our passage today, we get him talking about elders in verse 2, shepherding and exercising oversight. We're going to get that in just a second. But this idea, whenever we see elders in the New Testament letters, what we should be thinking of is the leaders of the local church. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the leaders of the local church. Sometimes it's one leader, sometimes it's one pastor. I'm the pastor or the elder of the River Church at this time. Um, sometimes it's more than one. Sometimes there's several pastors or leaders or elders. This this is just that New Testament term that Paul used or that Paul and Peter use. He says he's a fellow elder. In other words, he's like I can identify with you guys. I can identify with you elders who are leading the churches throughout Asia. 
He says, I'm a witness. I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He says, literally, he literally was a witness to the sufferings of Christ. Remember back to the gospel accounts. Peter, witnessing the beatings of Jesus, witnessing the cross, he witnessed it firsthand, the sufferings of Christ. And of course, sufferings of Christ, Peter mentions several times throughout this letter, as you remember. Then he says a third, a third way he identifies himself to the people. He says he's a partaker in the glory. Partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. He, not only, he can not only identify with those leaders in the church, but he can also identify with the sufferings of Christ, he himself having suffered. And he can say with, with great confidence and faith and trust that he too will partake in the glory that is to be revealed. Remember what Peter said earlier on in this letter when he said that, that God the Father has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus, to an inheritance that is imperishable, that is waiting in heaven for us. This glory that is to be revealed to all of God's people, to the entire community, saying, I am a partaker in that glory that will be revealed, that future glory, that grace that we will receive. Notice what he says here. He says, to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So he talks specifically to the leaders. And, and so really, I guess in a lot of ways, I'm preaching to myself because this is something that I need to hear and, uh, and any leader in the church needs to hear to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And he says to exercise oversight. That word oversight is really a, a based on the word overseer. Overseer. To shepherd, the verbal form of the word shepherd. Interestingly enough, why do we call, why do we call people like me pastors, the, the preachers, the leaders of the church? Why do we call them pastor? Well, because the Latin word for shepherd is pastor. <laughs> and so we've taken that Latin word and we transferred it right into English and we said, oh, well, there, there you go. There's your, pa- there's your pastor. So we use the word pastor rather than using one of these other words um, related to elder or um, overseer, or sometimes the, the word is used as bishop. The word bishop is used to talk about overseers in other churches. But the idea here is that elder was essentially the office. He's using the word elder as kind of like the, the title for the overall office, the, 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 maybe the title of that person, of that, of that position within the church. And then he uses the word shepherd and the word for overseer to describe the function. What are, what are the leaders of the church to do? To rule? Well, there's some ruling aspects to what a leader does, absolutely. But Peter wants, wants to here focus on what was Jesus? He was the shepherd. He was the chief shepherd, we're going to see. He was the great shepherd. He said, I am the good shepherd. And Peter says, if anything, as elders, we take our cue from Jesus to shepherd. We care for the flock. We put, we put their needs above our own. We go out of our way to serve them. We care for the, the flock that is among us, that is in us. And then he says, well, we also exercise oversight. 
Overseer or, or oversight is another function. It means to take care of things, to manage things, to make sure that things don't fall through the cracks, to make sure that things are going smoothly, that, that, that the church and the flock is moving in the right direction. You can see how these words, these functions sort of overlap, overlap a little bit. But notice what else he says here that's very important. Not under compulsion. Not under compulsion. What in the world does he mean by that? Well, he's talking about, really, he's talking about, are, are you doing this because you have to do it? <laughs> I had to talk with one of my pastor friends this um, week. We were talking about, we were talking about church attendance. And, um, and most of you probably attend church pretty, pretty regularly. But we all know um, friends and family who, well, they, maybe, maybe they might show up every once in a while, um, and you, you don't never you may never see them for you know you might not see them for a couple months or so and then they might show up again it happens right and I was thinking what if the pastor you know what if the pastor showed up to church to lead the church every uh, couple of weeks or so and every two or three weeks showed up and most of us would say well of course he's not going to do that because doggone it, he gets paid to be there he's got to be there right well, how terrible would it be if pastors shepherded and provided oversight for the church under compulsion because they had to be there? No. There's no other place I'd rather be than worshiping with God's people and bringing the Word every Sunday morning. I want to be there. That's why he says, willingly. You don't shepherd as an elder. You don't provide oversight or exercise oversight as an elder under compulsion, but willingly. And he says, as God would have you, literally according to God. God has called us, God has placed us, God has empowered us, and we go in that power. And we serve willingly in that power. He says, not for shameful gain. Oh boy. What's he mean by this? He, he's really talking about using a term that means trying to make money in a shameful kind of way. Shameful gain. No, not shameful gain, but eagerly. So we're not, we're not motivated by finances. We don't go into ministry to get rich. I didn't, I didn't leave a good job in the military to come out to the Northwest because I knew it was going to be a, a step up in my career. <laughs> we came up here not knowing what we would find, not having a single dollar committed to our ministry, not a one. And we made the move up here by God's grace and under His direction. And God's providing for our needs. We're eager to serve. We're eager to minister. Not domineering over those in your charge, he says, but being examples to the flock. Ooh, this, is, uh, this one, if I'm not careful, it's a little, gets a little close to home. It's easy. It's easy to have a domineering attitude once you're in a position of leadership, isn't it? It really is. And he says, not to domineer, but be an example. What should be, our, what should be the elder's example? What should be the elder's um, mode of operation? Not to get his way. Not to, not to make everything the way he wants it to be. But to be an example. So, I was thinking about an example. What would it be if I said, if I every Sunday or 
every week or so, I called you up and I said, okay, are you praying for the people on your transformation card? A few weeks ago, I asked and encouraged people, fill out this transformation card, write the names of three people who are far from God, who you're going to pray for every day, and every week look for an opportunity to share Jesus with. And sign your name on it too. What would it be if I hadn't done that? To be an example to the flock. To be one who says, I'm going to fill out one of these cards. <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm not going to ask anyone to do something that I haven't already done, or I'm not willing to do, or I'm not doing already myself. So I've got a card at home. Actually, it's in my wallet, in my car right now. And um, I've got, I think, five names on there. I just started jotting a couple other names in there. And you know what? Some of the people that are on my list, I have not seen for two weeks or so. And, but then there are other people that come into my life who I've had the opportunity to share the good news with just like that. It's like all of a sudden, I'm praying for these people, but then God's given me a whole other card to fill out. It's an example. Just an example of how we are to be following Christ. Following the example of Christ as elders and then giving that example, showing that example to the flock. What, is it, what else does he say? Ah, here we go. The chief shepherd. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Our motivation is to, to please the chief shepherd. Our motivation as elders, pastors, uh, overseers, is to please the one who is an elder over us, the one who is shepherd over us, the one who oversees our lives and our entire ministry. This is The River Church is not Michael's church. The River Church is shepherded by Christ Himself. It is the church of God. It is the church that belongs to Jesus. That kind of takes a lot of the pressure off me in a lot of ways. And then in a lot of ways, it, it raises the example and the standard for me in my life and for what we all do as a flock, right? Okay. Whew. Stand firm under right leaders, he says. If we have right leaders, leaders who are following the example of Christ, leaders who are shepherding, exercising oversight, willingly, eagerly, being examples to the flock, we will stand firm as a church. We have to have right leaders to stand firm. We also stand firm with mutual humility. And I put this in there. Um, I could have left out mutual, but it's, all, it's always nice to have a qualifier in there. Um, stand firm with humility, I could have said. But let me show you why I think it's mutual. <clears throat> First of all, likewise, verse 5, you who are younger, literally just... Young ones. Young. The word is just young in the Greek. But let's just, let's let our English <laughs> translations help us out here. You who are younger, be subject to the elders. Okay, so if the last few verses were tough for me, this is going to be tough for the rest of us, including myself, because I have people I'm accountable to as well. He uses the exact same word, be subject to the elders, 
as he uses all throughout chapter 2 and 3 when he said, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, be subject to the government, be subject to the authorities, civil authorities. He said to be subject to your masters, your bosses, those who employ you, be subject to them. He said, wives, be subject to your husbands. We talked about that a few weeks ago. That's a touchy one. But let's try to wrestle with it and figure out how to live that way. And then, of course, he talked about husbands. He doesn't use the same term, be subject, but he says for husbands to honor and love and live with their wives under, in an understanding way. So he says to be subject to the elders, and then he stops. And that's all he has to say to the younger ones. That's all he has to say to the rest of the people. Why do you think that is? I think it's because when he says be subject, he's recalling all the rest of the teaching. And he says, look, if you are going to be subject to the government and civil authorities, if you're going to be subject to your bosses, if you're going to defer to them and submit under their authority, if you're going to be subject wives to your husbands, if you're going to do all that stuff, and that's all expected of the community that's on mission, then at the very least, you ought to be subject to the leaders that God has appointed and placed in the local church. At the very least. So everything that he said previously, when he said, be subject to your masters, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. I think he's saying to us in chapter 5, be subject to your elders, not only to the good elders and the gentle elders, but to the unjust elders too. What credit is it if you sin and are beaten for it and you endure? But if you do good, if you are subjecting yourself, if you're submitting and things are going bad for you, that's good for you. That is to your credit, he says. That's the example that Christ gave. When he, says, when he says to, to the wives to be subject to the husband, so that even if some do not obey the word, what if you have an elder who doesn't obey the word? Well, there are ways of dealing with that. And Peter doesn't address them here, but there are other ways of dealing with that. But, but how, how could we go through our life living together in the body by tearing the elder down? No, that they may be one without a word by the conduct. All of these things that he says about government, masters, bosses, husbands and wives, I think they apply just as well to this short phrase. Peter doesn't need to get into it because he's already talked about what it looks like to be subject. Then he says this, and this is why we stand firm with mutual humility. Humility is not just for the flock. Elders are not immune to, to humility. They're called to be hum, humble too. Because he says, clothe yourselves, all of you. All of you. Elders, the younger ones, elders, the rest of the church, the rest of the flock, all of you, clothe yourself. Put on. Make humility your garment. So that when people see, when people see our garment, do they not? They see what we're clothed with. We look at each other and we say, okay, sweater, polo shirt, blouse, 
khakis, jeans, whatever you're wearing. Um, they, we see each other's clothing. When he says, clothe yourself with humility, he means when people see us, they should see humility. They should see humility. And it's for everyone, for the church and her leaders. He's going to say why in a second. I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to get to that. But let me give you one other thing here before I jump into that. Going on to verse 6 and 7. He says, humble yourselves. Literally, be humble. Is what he's saying. Be humble. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. And then verse 7 is key. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Some of our translations make that a completely different, a completely different um, sentence in the Bible. I think the NIV does that. Cast all your anxieties on Him, it says. Just whole new sentence, cast all your anxieties on Him. In fact, we have a song that we used to sing. Uh, I cast all my cares upon you. you know, that old song. Okay, we used to sing that song. It's just by itself. That, that, that verse is never meant to be by itself. It's meant to be connected with humility. What in the world does anxiety have to do with humility? Well, because anxiety is literally a form of pride. A, literally a form of pride. I wanted to... This is so... God is so cool because I'll be reading something during the week and then I'll come to the, come to the Word and I'm preparing for the message and I realize that what I've read is totally illustrated... Uh, as an illustration of what I'm seeing in the Word. So this great book, this great book I've been reading um, <clears throat> by a man named John Piper, it's called Future Grace. It's a little bit thick. You can see it's thick, but the pages are thick. Um, now there's thick stuff in here too, uh, but it's such a good book. And I've been reading through it. And, uh, and he comes to this very question. Why in the world, why is anxiety... A form of pride. Why does, why does Peter say that by casting all your anxieties on Him, you can be humble? By putting your anxieties on Jesus, on, on maybe even on God the Father, um, you can be humble. Why is it? Why is casting our anxieties on the Lord the opposite of pride? Because pride does not like to admit that it has any anxieties. Pride doesn't like to admit that it has any anxieties. And if pride has to admit it, it still does not like to admit that the remedy might be trusting someone else who is wiser and stronger. In other words, pride is a form of unbelief and doesn't like to trust in future grace, in what God has promised to do in and through His people. Faith admits the need for help. Pride won't. Faith banks on God to give help, but pride won't. Faith casts anxieties on God. Pride won't. Therefore, the way to battle the unbelief of pride is to admit freely that you have anxieties and to cherish the promise of future grace in the words, He cares for you. How many of you are battling anxiety right now? I mean, I have to admit that there's, there are things that I'm anxious about. And I'm... I'm confronted with this and I'm thinking, okay, if I'm so anxious about it, what am I not trusting God about? What is, what is the prideful thing in my heart that's keeping me holding on 
to this anxiety and not releasing it to God. Why not release it to God? He promises right there, He cares for us. He promises that under the mighty hand of God, He will exalt us at the proper time. He, he promises that He opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. What do you think Peter's people had things to be anxious about? Well, we've been reading all throughout here that they've been going through trials, that there are people against them, that they're living as a community on faith in a world of unbelief, in a hostile world. What was there to be anxious about? Everything. There's everything to be anxious about. Last 24 hours, I was anxious about whether or not we'd actually be in this building this morning. I'm not going to lie. We didn't have the key on Friday. I thought, we don't have the keys for the building. There's nobody in the, in the building all week. But you know what? We cast that anxiety on God. We know that He cares for us. We put faith in Him. And then the thought occurred to me, I've got all these people who work for the city who are going to be down in the park Saturday night because they're putting on this movie. I bet I could run into somebody down there and find somebody who can get us into the building this morning. And lo and behold, we found somebody. And here we are. I wasn't going to share that story because, you know, I create a lot of drama behind the scenes. But, you, but that kind of stuff happens all the time. Yet here we are, worshiping in a place that we can call our home right now. We cast our anxieties on Him. We don't harbor pride. Sometimes you have to humble yourself and say, uh, excuse me, um, forgot, I forgot to pick up the key on Friday. Um, can you let me into the building? And they go, sure, but don't let it happen again. And I go, yes, yes, sir. We humble ourselves and, and, and we let God exalt us in a proper time. Whew, I'm, I better get going here. We're never going to get through this whole p- passage today before 11. Stand firm also against a spiritual enemy, Peter tells us. Because what does he go into very, right, right, very, very next thing? He says to be sober-minded, to be watchful. And in verse 9, he says, resist him. I, I put all of the, I wanted all of these up there for you guys to, to see. These are all direct commands. Peter's giving us a command. He's saying, be sober-minded. What does that mean? Actually, literally self-controlled. But it was the idea that um, all of these are the idea of, what if you were standing guard, maybe at a city gate, maybe on a, on a city wall, maybe outside of a very important building, Maybe um, as a couple weeks ago I was doing some work with the National Guard and they have a little tent set up where the, the command post, right? All this stuff is going on. Well, there's a guard outside, you know, a little ways away, another little tent, barriers all around. And that guard there is being sober-minded. He's being self-controlled. He's not, out th- he's not playing video games. He's not drinking. He's not having a party. He's not going, eh, let's see, doesn't look like anyone's really coming right now. I can probably take a little nap. He's standing guard. He's sober-minded. He's being watchful. He's ready for some kind of shenanigans to take place, right? He's ready. He's watching out for the enemy. Why? 
He says, because your adversary, your enemy, your, your slanderer, the devil, he's prowling around. He's like a roaring lion. He's looking for, he's seeking, he's trying to find somebody he's going to devour. That's who we're watching out for. That's who we're standing firm against. Okay, so why does he say this? Because the devil will try to destroy our relationships within the body. He will try to bring animosity between the people and the elders. The people and the leaders of the church. That's what the devil wants to do. He wants to tear those relationships down. Stand firm against them. Be sober mindful. Be watchful. Resist that temptation. Uh, humility, anxiety, pride. The devil will try to put a root of pride in your life. You won't seek help. You'll give in to anxiety. You'll give in to worry. He's going to try to, to, to stir that up in you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Resist the devil. He says, resist him firm in your faith. There it is right there. Stand firm in your faith. And, and what does he, he add on to that? He says, look, you're not alone. You're not the only one who's dealing with this. You may think you're the only one dealing with that kind of anxiety. You may be the only one who's dealing with the kind of troubled leaders that you're, that, within your local body. You, you may be the only leader who thinks you've got people who are causing you problems in the church. No. The, know that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers, by the fellowship of believers, fellowship of Christians all over the world. You're not alone. Other people are experiencing the same things. You are not alone. We are in this together. We are fighting together. Why is it that we pray for our missionaries overseas? Why is it that people like me are asking Christians and churches all over the, the country, pray for us. We need prayer partners. We're starting out small. Why do we need that? Because the devil's trying to come against us. He's going to try to destroy our relationships. He's going to try to, try to destroy our, my marriage. He's going to try to take down my wife. He's going to try to take down my children. That's what he does. Be watchful. Resist the devil. Because he says then, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Stand firm with the assurance of God. Stand firm with the assurance of God. God is the only sure thing in this world. Nothing else is firm. You can live on the side of a hill and it will fall out from underneath you. You can live in a beautiful valley and the, the entire mountain will come and destroy you and kill tens and dozens of people. Nothing is sure. Nothing is sure. Your jobs are not sure. <laughs> jobs go like that, don't they? Nothing is sure. Your goodness is not sure. I was talking with a man yesterday um, who never met before showed up at our house and um, had an opportunity to chat with him a little bit. Before I knew it, well, he was, he was the father of one of my girl's um, little friends. But before I knew it, we were sitting down in our, uh, on our couches and we just had an hour and a half long conversation about all kinds of stuff. 
His, some of his military experience, some of my experience, talking about spiritual things, talking about Jesus, talking about where the Bible came from and why I trust it, why I trust Jesus. That was crazy. Just out of the blue. Never met him before. And all of a sudden he's sitting in my living room and we're talking about these things. And one of the things that struck me about what he said is, well, you know, kind of not really too religious. But, you know, I used to go in the past, but I just feel like I, I'm, a, I'm a pretty good person. I really live a good life. I'm a, I do the right thing. I just kind of have this, there's just kind of this motivation I have to just always do the right thing. So that's what I do. Always. <laughs> right? None of us always do the right thing. We, stand, we cannot stand firm on our good things. Because one of these days, we're going to mess up. What then? What then when we, when we make a mistake? What then when we're like, well, I didn't quite do the, good, the right thing? We're either going to completely justify ourselves and deny that we don't do the wrong thing sometimes, or we're going to just completely fall apart and give up. Might as well not even try being good. Might as well not even try resisting that sin anymore. That particular sin, ah, forget it. I'll never get over that. I'll just keep giving into it every once in a while. I'll let that define my life. The only sure thing in our lives is God. And he says that even if you have suffered, the God of all grace has called you. He is the God of grace. He is the God who has called us. He is the God who has made us His people. He will what? Restore us. Confirm. Strengthen. Establish us. After suffering, suffering will give way to restoration with Jesus. It will give way to confirmation. We are His people. He will confirm it. He will not let us down. He will strengthen us. He will build us back up. He will establish us with Him. And what does He say? Peter gets done with that and he says, To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The dominion is the power. The dominion is the strength and the authority or the might that God has. All power. All might. It's all God's. Amen. Well, don't, don't overlook the last few verses. We often overlook these. We get to the end and we go, well, it's just some personal greetings here and there. Don't neglect what he says. And I want to give you this um, by way of reminder. Remember not only God and His grace and His calling, but remember faithful witnesses. How many of you love to read or have read biographies? We love reading biographies, love reading stories of what other people are doing. I love to read about missionary bi biographies. I read a lot of them, li the little paperbacks, when I was a kid. And I remember reading about Adoniram Judson and about how he took a trip from New England and he went all the way to Burma, modern Myanmar. He went to Burma and he was the first, the first American missionary to, go, to be sent overseas. He goes to Burma. He spends over 40 years there. He spent six years before, the, before one person accepted Christ, before one person came to faith in Christ. 
He spent his entire life there. And all of the things that he went through, his wife died, he married another wife, his wife died, he married another wife, he died, and then his wife died, and his kids were dying. And all of this stuff was going on in his life. And we remember the faithful witness of the people who have gone before us, the people who are serving God in harm's way all over the place, the people like you. And we we hear testimonies among each other. And we hear about what God is doing. And we remember that God is faithful. God is faithful. God has given us. He's equipped us. He has empowered us to do what we do. And He wants wants us to remember Silvanus. This is the guy named Silas. In, in In the book of Acts, Paul and Silas go on missionary journeys. This is that guy. He had, his, he had a couple of variations on his name. But we see Silas, who faithfully served with Paul for years, is now faithfully serving with Peter. And then we see him give greetings from Mark. Who is this Mark? He's, the, he's none other than the one who wrote the Gospel. The Gospel of Mark. He was this young man named John Mark who went with Paul and Barnabas on their first journey. And then partway through he said, I'm going home. And we don't hear much else from that. Did he, did he, was he too stressed out? Was he too anxious? Was he sick? We don't know what happened. All we know is later on, Paul, Paul didn't want to take John Mark with him on the next journey. This young man who abandoned the first missionary journey is here with Peter at the end of his life and he's saying, He's basically including Mark. Mark is in my crew. He's in my posse. He's in my entourage. He is, he's rolling with me. He is a faithful witness. And he's sending greetings from you. So does she who is at Babylon. This is a code for the church that was in Rome. This is code for the church that was in Rome. These people who have been faithful, faithful witnesses are greeting you. Remember this testimony. Remember it. And remember that He says, I have just written you briefly. Well, it was a brief letter and it's taken me 13 weeks to get through it and preach through it. But it's a brief letter and he's exhorting us to what? He's declaring that this is the true grace of God. What we are reading and what we are learning is true. It is God's grace for us. And what are we to do? To stand firm in it. To stand firm in it. Folks, a community on mission stands firm on the truth of the good news of Jesus, even in the face of suffering and attacks from the enemy. We are going to face suffering. We are going to be attacked. If we are going to do anything good for God, be ready, armor up, be ready for the attacks. They will come. The devil wants nothing more than to steal your joy to steal your effectiveness, and to take glory away from God. Because that's all He's got to work for. His fate is sealed. So what, is that, what else does He have to do? It's to take away the joy and the glory that God can have in your own life. By doing that, He destroys God's good creation, that is you, and the people around us. The people who, quite frankly, who live in our neighborhood that need to be on these cards, we need to be praying for them. We need to be sharing the good news of Jesus with them day in and day out. These people who the devil is already working to steal their joy 
and to steal the glory that God wants to have in their own lives. Stand firm. That's the message. It's really simple. It's two words. Stand firm. Stand firm. How do you need to stand firm today? I want to give you an opportunity to respond. Um, we're going to sing another song. We're just going to give, uh, continue our praise and our worship to God. And so I'm going to ask you to stand in a moment um, after I pray. And I want you to respond in whatever way you need to respond. Maybe some of these things that I said this morning, maybe they, they hit a little too close to home. And for that, I don't apologize. If the Holy Spirit has something to say to you, then listen and respond to it. Respond how you feel led. I'm singing, but after we're done singing, I want to be available. I especially want to, to greet some of our visitors. It's great to have you folks with us this morning. And I want to be able to say hi to you and meet you face to face. But remember that we're a community. Um, confess your sins to one another. Repent to one another. Grab a, a neighbor. Grab a brother or sister in Christ who's here this morning. Get right with God this morning. Okay? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you. Thank you for this message this morning. And God, I pray that you will not let your word um, go away from here void. Lord, I know you will accomplish what you have designed to accomplish. Lord God, I just pray that, that we will, by faith, respond to what you have said to us this morning. I pray, God, that, that you will be glorified. You will be glorified in this place this morning. I pray, I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with me and we will, we will sing together.